Can you please put your hands together for a BAFTA award-winning director, Susanna White. Thank you. Thank you. What an inspiring group of women and, and what a fabulous scheme. Thank you to BAFTA for asking me to give this keynote speech. It's such an important subject that um, I think people feel it's out there and it's being dealt with, but it's not actually thoroughly being dealt with at all, and, and we all need to look hard at why not. So I was asked to speak tonight on the subject of women in film, and I turned the subject around in my head and thought, well, shall I talk about the work of female directors I admire. Jane Campion, Catherine Bigelow, Greta Gerwig, what marks them out, what defines them, what inspired them, what inspires me about them. But in considering their work, I kept returning to the much bigger question of why there aren't more of those names to conjure with, why in this time of Time's Up, when everyone says female filmmakers are having their moment, in 2017, only 14% of feature films around the world were directed by women. And as Pippa said, the statistics in television are even worse. Nearly 90 years ago at the University of Cambridge, Virginia Woolf was asked to speak on the subject of women in fiction. At first, she too wondered whether she should give a discourse on the work of successful women in her field. George Eliot, Jane Austen, or Charlotte Bronte. Instead, she began to consider a character she gave life to, Shakespeare's sister, and asked the question, why was that sister silent? Why is it the canon of her brother we study and not her own? In considering it, Virginia Woolf decided it came down to a very practical issue, that what women needed to be creative was 500 pounds a year and a room of one's own. My argument tonight in tracking my own career and drawing wider conclusions from it will be that there are similar, very practical issues preventing us going to the movie theatre to watch the work of, say, for the sake of argument, Quentin Tarantino's sister, just as Virginia Woolf's fictional uh, heroine was excluded from entry to the libraries of university colleges by virtue of her sex. So I will describe how thousands of talented young women have been excluded from careers as film and television directors every year, simply because they are not men. I'm one of a very small group of lucky ones. In many ways, my career is an exception to this rule, but in many ways, it's an example of it. In 1969, my family gathered around our television set in the suburbs of South London to watch the transmission of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. That small box made me feel anything was possible. It had the ability to transport our family as a group to other places, other planets. The moon I looked out of my window at at night suddenly became a practical surface to be explored. Partly the joy was that of shared experience, partly the practical wonder of how that signal was transmitted from the moon to my television at home. Later that year, the Petswood Brownie Pack went on an outing to BBC Television Centre to watch the children's programme Crackerjack being made. While my friends were eager to get up on stage to win prizes, I was glued to my seat, transfixed. A red light came on on a camera which skated across the shiny floor, 
On the monitor above me was a two-shot of Leslie Crowther and Peter Glaze. The image changed to another one. Leslie Crowther turned his head, and suddenly he was in close-up from a different camera. The red light went on on that. As the second camera went live, I went live with the realization of how these images came about. There was a very concrete aspect to the magic that could be taught and acquired. My life after that moment became a practical journey to learn and practice those skills. Fast forward about 10 years, I'm at university reading English. Television seemed to be going through a sea change. I remember the excitement when Jeremy Isaacs came to speak to students about the newly formed Channel 4. There was a big buzz because we had the possibility of four television channels as potential employers rather than the three we'd grown up with. I remember in an interview for a Fulbright scholarship discussing the viability of cable television in the UK. A multi-channel environment seemed like a far-off world. Student filmmaking led me from Oxford to the MFA program at UCLA. As well as the practical filmmaking skills I learned at UCLA, perhaps the greatest gift my time in California gave me was a sense of possibility, that good ideas are a precious commodity and we were in a place that hatched them. Any one of us could take those ideas out into the world and have a voice. I hit my first buffer coming back to England in the mid-80s an interview in room 101 at the BBC. Four men in suits on the panel interviewing applicants for the BBC production trainee scheme and a female secretary taking notes. What made me think I could be a director? I listed the number of films I'd made since the age of eight and the Fulbright scholarship to UCLA. Why on earth would that qualify me? I remember being asked. Why didn't I stay home and work on my local paper? At the time, I saw those questions just as a test of my powers of argument. After all, lots of people wanted these coveted positions. It was notoriously hard, whether you were a man or a woman. I put my failure down to my interview technique and to sheer numbers of people wanting to do it. But I was crushed not to get just a rejection from that interview, but from the many jobs I applied for over the next year. I'd soon acquired a file of rejection letters nearly two inches thick. The excitement I felt at UCLA was met by door after door being shut in my face. I wished I were back in California. But looking back now, I see my personal rejection as symptomatic of a much larger pattern. And 20 years later, the situation is shockingly no better. In the study commissioned by Directors UK published in 2016, cut out of the picture, it was shown that in the 10-year period up to 2014, 50% of all film students in the UK and 49.4% of new entrants in the film industry were women. And yet nearly 90% of those who made it through to directing a feature film were men. Unlike other careers, like science or engineering, the shortage of female directors we currently see is clearly not caused by lack of aspiration. The depressing finding of the report was a systemic bias against women at every key stage of their careers. The report showed women were underrepresented in all the major routes to directing. In film crews, the ratio of women represented was less than 10% in the key creative roles of camera and editing compared with an astonishing 80% in the non-pathway roles people saw as appropriate for women, hair and makeup and costume. 
I can't think of a single example of anyone going from those departments into directing a film. Women did relatively well as third assistant directors and second assistant directors, around 30%. But moving to the key role of first assistant director, a common route to directing, the number dwindled to 15%. When women did manage to break through into directing, a marked funnel effect set in. 27% of short films were directed by women, but only 14% of full-length television drama. If women successfully became directors, they struggled to progress to larger budgets, 16% of women on low-budget films compared to just over 3% on high-budget films. In 2018, British films are still six times more likely to be directed by a man than by a woman. The pattern's been pretty much the same in the USA. It's the experience of most of the women here tonight picked for the Elevate program. That's what they've had in their careers so far. I now realize that was what was going on for me in the late 1980s. My personal situation was representative of a much larger whole. How did I get round that? Having discovered the thing that made me feel more alive than anything else on earth and completely matched my skill set, there was no way I was going to give up. I met with some old friends from university who just got sponsorship from Lloyds Bank to run a national screenwriting competition and became involved in running that. It meant reading lots of scripts and workshopping them with in industry professionals in a summer school. In my spare time, I kept making short films and music videos unpaid with whatever money I could raise. I tried getting any entry-level position that was advertised or unadvertised. I kept coming up with film and television ideas, which I knew were the commodity the industry constantly needed to renew. Finally, that tactic won through. Four years after leaving UCLA, I got a letter from Eddie Mertzoff, the program editor of 40 Minutes at the BBC, who was to go on to be chairman of BAFTA. Like many artists over the years, my career has been totally dependent on patrons, and Eddie was one of those remarkable people with a nose for talent and a disregard for the system. He didn't mind whether good ideas came from men or women. He discovered and nurtured Molly Deneen and Lucy Blackstad, and to my eternal gratitude, he took a punt on me. Under Eddie's patronage, I made my first film for television, a documentary about the clash of cultures between the residents of Appleby and Cumbria and the gypsies who held their annual horse fair in the town. Eddie gave me an anthropologist to work with, Melissa Llewellyn Davis, and a talented young cameraman, Richard Rankin. With that film behind me, I was launched as a freelance director. From there, I moved to Channel 4 to direct Volvo City, a portrait of the community of Hasidic Jews in Stamford Hill, followed by readers' wives. For the next few years, I moved between the channels, making films on subjects ranging from a year in the life of the Victorian Albert Museum to arts films working with, with writers like Bla Blake Morrison and Ben Ockrey. However, I was still trying to pursue my original dream, to direct drama and ideally a feature film. Twice, I applied to the BBC Drama Directors course, a brilliant six-week course taught by established drama directors. Again, another interview with men in suits. This time, the question that surprised me the first time it came up, but not the second, was, what makes you think you can control 100 people? I turned it round and asked them what made them think I couldn't. I wonder now if they asked that same question of the men they interviewed. Two more rejection letters. 
Again, my personal disappointment and a sense of failure, I realize, was part of a systemic problem. Women tend to do much better as directors of factual programs than television drama, albeit with some level of gender bias. Plenty of women are hired for programs on body image, food, and family, while far fewer for science and technology. Factual crews are a maximum of two or three people, even fewer now, where many factual directors self-shoot, whereas drama crews are often nearer 100. For an industry one thinks of as being progressive, it's actually incredibly risk-averse. When budgets and responsibility get bigger, people tend to hire people who look like the successful ones who went before. Women might get in under the radar in factual programming with a patron like Eddie, but in drama, a lot more boxes need to be ticked. The Director's UK report broke it down into precise statistics. While a healthy 29% of children's factual programs in British television were directed by women, only 9% got to direct children's television drama. Undeterred, I kept knocking on doors. I finally got to direct a cinema short for Film 4's Short and Curlies, based on a short story by Blake Morrison. My family were worried. I was eight months pregnant with twins at the time, but I wasn't going to miss the opportunity to get a film into production. Finally, having given birth to two beautiful girls, I got a place on the BBC Drama Directors School. <laughs> From there, I directed two episodes of Holby City, and once I'd proved to the world I could control 100 people in the form of the Holby City crews, more opportunities opened up. I was given the chance to direct the comedy series Teachers, and from Teachers I moved on to direct a new drama series about the dot-com boom, Attachment. For many women, there's another blockage in the funnel, moving from staple shows like Holby to high-end authored programming. My route through this was the extraordinary producer Tony Garnett. Diversity has always been the nature of Tony's game. An outsider himself from a working-class family in Birmingham, very different from many of the standard privately educated producers of the day, Tony actively promoted people who might struggle to penetrate the world of the broadcasters through conventional routes. With Tony's help, and with that of Jane Root, the then controller of BBC Two, who circumvented the drama establishment by giving me money from a factual budget, I made my first, fine, my first single film, a period drama about the life and loves of Philip Larkin, Love Again. Starring Hugh Bonneville, Eileen Atkins, and Tara Fitzgerald, we made it for £200,000, and it was transmitted on BBC Two, I'm glad to say, to critical acclaim in 2003. I was still trying to make a film for the cinema, but in the meantime, another opportunity came my way. Nigel Stafford-Clark was producing an adaptation of Charles Dickens' Bleak House for the BBC. Bleak House was a huge criti critical success and a big boost to the BBC in the run-up to charter renewal. It put the wonderful BAFTA award on my shelf and won a host of other awards internationally. The lead director on the series, Justin Chadwick, was deservedly snapped up by Hollywood with a range of studio projects on offer. For me, life carried on pretty much as normal. Feature films remained elusive, but I continued to find work in television. By now, I had young twins and, like all directors, faced the issue of childcare. I was offered the job directing the BBC adaptation of Jane Eyre. 
The offer came on the Friday with the suggestion that I should move to Derbyshire for four months on the Monday. <laughs> I'm eternally grateful to my incredibly supportive husband that somehow our family rode that wave and I did it. It sometimes comes up as an argument that the shortage of female directors is down to the fact that women reject the unsocial hours associated with being a director in favor of staying at home with their children. While the freelance industry is undoubtedly challenging for both men and women, and some women may make that choice, I would argue that the proportion of women who actively elect not to direct drama is relatively small. Let's go back to those numbers. 50% of women graduate film school wanting to direct, and only 3% of big-budget feature films are directed by women. In jobs in the industry which aren't traditionally male-preserved, such as hair and makeup and costume design, over 80% of heads of department are women. Those people often work much longer hours than the director. They're the first to arrive in the morning, often putting actors through complicated prosthetics and wigs, and the last to leave in the evening. The director can leave when rap is called, but hair and makeup and costumes stay, stay behind, removing the actor's makeup from the day and preparing for the morning. If the issue was, was solely about an unwillingness to work long hours, it's hard to explain this disproportion. Surprisingly, perhaps, I can truthfully say I have never encountered any overt sexism in my career. When women get the opportunity to direct, crews are generally hugely supportive and comment surprisingly often for 2018 on how good it is to have a woman in charge. I don't think anyone ever consciously denied me an opportunity to direct because I was a woman. The truth is much more subtle and for that reason much more insidious. In a freelance industry where everyone's success depends on ratings for their last piece of work, people tend not to take risks. They either, understandably, hire someone with a proven track record in that area, or if they're looking for the bright new face of directing, tend to hire someone who looks like people who've gone before and done well. Whether executives or directors, we're all as good as the last thing we did. It was in 2007, after directing Generation Kill, that personally I realized the full extent of the problem. Lots of people ask me how that job came about. What happened is that the scripts were sent to my agent for another of her clients, Kevin MacDonald. Kevin wasn't available, and Natasha thought an opportunity to work with David Simon, best known for his work on The Wire, might appeal to me. Again, David is one of those truly remarkable people my career has been dependent on. He's blind to sex and race when it comes to hiring directors. David, having a long track record in hiring female directors, had no issue at all in hiring me. In fact, having once been compared to Dickens, he was delighted that a director of Bleak House should direct his miniseries on the American invasion of Iraq. It was when other people started to comment, I realized the problem. How remarkable, producers and journalists said, that a woman had directed this material. How unremarkable, I realized, were all those times that men had directed Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. 
No one chose to comment when 13 productions of Jane Eyre were directed by men. <laughs> None of the crew on Generation Kill had any issue with the fact I was a woman, nor did the ensemble cast of 35 men. The series had 11 Emmy nominations, including Best Director. Finally, 23 years after leaving UCLA, I got my first feature film for Universal Studios. From the director of Generation Kill, Nanny McPhee and the Big Bang. <laughs> I'm not knocking it in any way. It was an incredible opportunity for anyone, given to me by Deborah Hayward, Lindsay Duran, and Working Title. A $30 million studio film with huge movie stars. Emma Thompson, Maggie Smith, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Reese Fans, Rafe Fiennes, Ewan McGregor, Asa Butterfield. In many ways, my dream had come true. I pinched myself walking through the gates of the studios. It was incredible to be working with that cast in that place. It just wasn't what one might have expected to be offered after Generation Kill. <laughs> or maybe it was, in terms of how it fits with the statistics. When women do reach the top of the pyramid, it's far more likely their big-budget film will be a children's or family film than anything else. Take Philippa Lothorpe, one of our most distinguished, multi-award-winning television directors and a similar sort of age to me. When she got her first feature film, it was Swallows and Amazons, and no one could have done a better job of it. But just think about the implications of that for a moment. What if someone had said to George Eliot, we have enormous faith in your talent and we'd like to commission a novel from you. The only thing is, it needs to be a children's book. I have no doubt George Eliot would have written a children's classic, but the world wouldn't have had Middlemarch. I know of at least one person on the Elevate program who's had an entire career in children's drama who has a lot of powerful adult things to say. And I would urge any of you in this room in a position to hire her to think very seriously about that. In 2016, I, I directed my first feature thriller, John le Carre's Our Kind of Traitor, with Ewan McGregor, Stellan Skarsgård, and Naomi Harris. The odds against someone like me directing something like that are crazier than anything else I've done. Only 3% of high-budget feature films are made by women. Does any of this actually matter? As long as television and film gets made, why should we care about the personal well-being of a group of women? You might be feeling at this point that this lecture's a bit of a moan. I actually feel incredibly privileged to have had the opportunity to spend my life doing something I absolutely love in the company of some of the best writers, actors, and crews in the world. But does it matter? Yes, it does. Firstly, because our culture is a lot less rich because of it. Potentially, we're missing out on a lot of talent. We'll never know what Shakespeare's sister could have written just as we'll never know what films could have been made by the sisters of Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese, or Quentin Tarantino. 
We know the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola has produced some pretty remarkable work. But imagine the English novel without Jane Austen, without the Brontes, without George Eliot, without Virginia Woolf. By the law of averages, world cinema has to be depriving itself of that sort of talent. We just don't know what we've missed out on on the big and small screen from the sensibilities of thousands of women who've been overlooked. In the New York Times, Gloria Steinem wrote a piece about the difference between what women want in films and what men want. She defined a chick flick as one with more dialogue than car chases, more relationships than special effects, and whose suspense comes from how people live rather than how they get killed. She went on to write, as long as men are taken seriously when they write about the female half of the world, and women are not taken seriously when writing about ourselves, much less about men and public affairs, the list of great authors will be more about power than talent, more about opinion than experience. She goes on to define how the problems link to the fact that adjectives are mostly required of the less powerful. Thus, there are novelists and female novelists, African-American doctors, but not European-American doctors, gay soldiers, but not heterosexual soldiers, and by extension, film directors and female film directors. It doesn't stop there. Hiring female directors has a huge knock-on effect on both the industry and on society at large. Women tend to hire more women. Female directors often means work for female cinematographers, more female editors, and more female assistant directors. And women are often interested in telling strong female stories that often aren't heard. In films with a female director or writer, women comprise 45% of protagonists, 48% of major characters, and 42% of speaking characters. Flip that to the films with a male director and writer, and women account for just 20% of protagonists, 33% of major characters, and 32% of speaking characters. The screens we watch mirror our society back to us. Employing female directors means a fairer representation of the world we live in. If women make up just over 50% of our population, doesn't it make sense that a reasonable amount of screen time should involve stories about that group of people? The Gina Davis Institute showed that only 3% of lawyers and judges on screen were portrayed as women, 5% of doctors, and 6% of politicians. Is that the society we really want and the society we hope our children will aspire to be a part of? The screens we watch have a direct impact on our lives. The year after the release of The Hunger Games saw a huge increase in the number of girls taking up archery. In a survey of the American Archery Association, seven out of 10 girls said they'd inspired to take up archery as a direct result of the portrayal of Katniss in the films. By extension, what if popular film showed strong young women entering into meaningful roles in public life with voices that were heard? Film projects a world of possibility. As directors, we work on the script as well as casting both speaking roles and extras. As the director, you make a choice of what a board member looks like, what the head of a school looks like, who plays an engineer or an architect. By having more female directors, we can create a virtuous circle of inspiration for society as we'd like it to be. 
This argument isn't just about men and women, it's about diversity as a whole, about creating a fairer and more healthy society where all different types of voices are heard. Monitoring the freelance culture is an essential step forward in an industry that isn't governed by, governed by normal HR practices. That's why in 2018, opportunities are so far from equal in our industry. This goes beyond equity between men and women. It should take in diversity across the board. To conclude, both in the UK and in the US, we've missed out as a society from a lot of potential talent not being given opportunities. I wish the solution were as simple as Virginia Woolf's one, of 500 pounds and a room of one's own. Making a film requires a lot more people and resources than writing a novel. And to change the situation for directors, systemic reform is needed to move from a vicious circle to a virtuous one. We need better monitoring of the freelance workforce, more diverse voices in the community of critics, and diversity in people invited to join our bodies who vote on recognizing talent. In the last two years, we've seen some genuinely positive steps. The award success of Ladybird, the commercial success of Wonder Woman, and Rachel Morrison, the first female cinematographer in the history of cinema nominated for an Oscar. I'm thrilled, as Pippa said, to see that a great supporter of this program, S.J. Clarkson, is going to direct the next Star Trek, a prime example of what I've been talking about as one of our most outstanding television directors who took years to get a feature film. Female showrunners like Ava DuVernay are hiring female directors to helm their shows. I've just come from the Tribeca Film Festival, where they made a decision to program 46% of the films by female directors. Initiatives by the broadcasters, the BFI's 50% target, and BAFTA's Elevate scheme are just what we need to be doing. But we absolutely must not be complacent. Elevate has done a fantastic job in promoting a remarkable group of women. But as their individual stories show, the odds have been thoroughly stacked against them until now. There are a lot of powerful decision makers in this room. What we need now is for you to support this incredible bunch of talented women and give them the chance to put their visions on screen. Please know just how real this struggle is and set about being agents of change. Only then will we be on the path to a fairer society where female voices are heard at the volume of male ones and where screens around the world project the sort of world we want to live in. Thank you.